In a world where one woman locks herself inside a quiet studio and doesn't come out until the podcast is done, welcome to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed, a place you can get connected with Donna and her friends and listen in on some great conversation. Thankfully, unlike the intro you just heard, it's a drama-free zone. You're welcome. Now, as we listen to a bit of music from the amazing Mark Sparrow to lead us in, it's my pleasure to introduce the one, the only, Donna Reed. Today in the studio, Parthenon Huxley. If you grew up in North Carolina, if you lived in North Carolina, you have heard this guy's band. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. My pleasure. It's great to be here. Now, Parthenon Huxley. I know you have a name as well, and you were born, I mean, what is your, your real name? Well, my real name, legal name, is Parthenon Huxley, but I was born uh, Rick Miller, and that evolved into, uh, when I was playing in North Carolina, Rick Rock. I'm looking at your bio. You're born in Baton Rouge, raised in Greece and in New Jersey, then you went to UNC. All these different places you've lived in, has that added to the style of music that is so much about Parthenon Huxley? I don't know if the geography did a lot. It may have. Um, I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan when I was a kid, and that was in New Jersey. I think the effect on me would have happened no matter where I lived, because Mm -hmm. that was really what sent me on my way, like, you know, 50 million other guitar players. But um, when I lived in Greece, I was there from fifth grade to 12th grade, and I did have exposure to to more European bands and, you know, some Dutch bands like We Heard a Golden Earring a Million Years Before Radar Love, stuff like that. Yeah. And there was a band called Socrates Drank the Conium in Athens, which was an all-Greek power trio that were amazing. So I did get exposed to uh, some things that, you know, didn't weren't always huge in the States, like the band The Move played a big part of my yes. life. Um, uh you know, we knew all about them, but um, uh, so yeah, there's some there's some influence on what I do, but I think that the Beatles was the first imprint and the strongest, just like with so many other people. And as a teenager, growing up in Greece, listening to all the music in Europe, that must have been different. Like you just said, I mean, there's just so much. Well, we didn't know what was going on in the States, really, except right. when our brothers would bring us albums back from college. You know, that uh-huh. was our that was our underground channel. Um, and the, some of the kids who had military privileges could get into the PX and buy albums for two dollars and fifty cents. Yeah. I remember sitting out in the parking lot of a PX because I was civilian. So my mm-hmm. my military friends were able to go in and I remember I'd saved up two dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> <laughs> And they said, okay, what's it going to be, Spirit or Jethro Tull? Right. And I was sitting there <laughs> agonizing, and I said, well, you guys are probably going to buy Jethro Tull eventually, so get me Spirit, I guess. And so Parthenon, uh, oh, go ahead, go ahead. So anyway, we had, our sources were, you know, the military stuff, because um, the, the the Greek record stores were pretty terrible. They didn't have much in them. Okay. And, and we did get magazines like Crawdaddy and Hit Parader, so that was our... Okay. That was kind of our channels to, uh, and we didn't have TV or anything, you know, and radio was terrible. So it was pretty much a few magazines and our older brothers coming back from college that we discovered everything. Now I get Parthenon because of Greece. Huxley, I think I know, but I'm going to let you explain it. I was just trying to catch, 
come up with a catchy name. Um, it, it wasn't really a big plan or a, or a big idea. I just wanted to change my name for fun to, as an artist. And Parthenon's pretty obvious. And I, I messed with a few last names, and I, I like the sound of Huxley, and I really mm. love the book Island by Aldous Huxley. Um, that's my favorite book of his. And uh, so I thought Parthenon Huxley was pretty catchy, and I went with it. I have so much to talk to you about. Um, ELO two. The tour. We're going to talk about that later on. Um, who you've worked with, including Mick Jones of Foreigner. Um, mm-hmm. I like the two bands. It's Parthenon Huxley and his ridiculous band, and also Parthenon Huxley and the Suitors. Tell me a little bit about both of those. Parthenon Huxley and his ridiculous band is. Um, well, let me start with the Suitors. The, uh, the Suitors I kind of fell into accidentally. My brother in law, Jamie O'Connell was running an open mic here in Bethesda, Maryland. And um, he had a great drummer and bass player with him, uh, Dave Fennessy on bass and Ricky Wise on drums. And they were so good. Like it wasn't the, it wasn't the guys who signed up that were any good. <laughs> it was, But the house band was really good. So I started sitting in with them and just like, well, let's play a half hour or an hour before the signups begin, you know, and do mm-hmm. a little show every Sunday night. Not many people showed up. It was fine. It was just kind of fun. But we did that for about a year and by that time we had like a hundred songs between us and we started doing gigs and and uh then jamie went off to do his his uh thing and and i kept dave and ricky in my band and then added a keyboard player daniel clark who's plays with katie lang among other people mm-hmm. and so i've got this great little maryland band i mean a, a fantastic band and that's Parthenon huxley and his ridiculous band because um, they are so ridiculously good it's so great to be back on tour after the last couple of years. Yeah, it's nice to play out, and and uh, that's been that's been great because it did shut down pretty severely. Um, all my bands, yeah, we we did our first show at Jam and Java up here a little while ago, and it was pretty much two years to the date, I I think, that we hadn't played. Um, so it was fantastic to be playing live again, especially with my band, which is so good, and we do like a. We do a two-hour show, and uh, most of it is my original music, but then we do a bunch of fun uh, covers that are kind of difficult covers, and uh, it's it's really fun. I was thinking of your first single, Buddha Buddha, and um, I'm trying to remember Rolling Stone said something about you could land a marlin with these hooks. That's exactly it. That is it. That must have been, I mean, your first single? Yeah, that was pretty great. Um, pretty exciting, especially back in the day pre-internet when Rolling Stone still was a real arbiter of rock and roll, you mm-hmm. know, taste. And so when you if you get if you got reviewed in Rolling Stone, it was a big deal and something that would forever be on your um, list of quotes, you know. Right. Uh, so yeah, that was a huge thrill. And, and then you were on their download chart, I think, for another hit. Yeah, uh, early two thousands. I had an album called Purgatory Falls, and the song was called I Loved Everything. I don't know exactly what that chart is on Rolling Stone, but it was in their back page, and it was the exclusive download chart. Uh, I don't care what kind of chart it was, because I was number one on that chart. So (laughs) uh, I can officially say I had a number one record, so that's really all that matters. It is, it is. And, you know, you have roots in North Carolina working with some of the best, like Jamie Hoover and Don Dixon. Have you toured with them recently, or are you planning to, or...? Um, it's been a while. Dixon, 
Dixon and I played together. We had a little, we had a band for a few minutes back in the eighties called Me and Dixon, uh, with Rob Ladd on drums and Don on bass, obviously, and me on guitar. And we mm-hmm. we did a show a few years ago. Everything pre-pandemic seems like kind of a foggy <laughs> wasteland now. Does but, it? <laughs> uh, it was probably four years ago or something, and we played a few shows. Um, so I, I'm always in touch with those guys. Uh, they're really good friends of mine, and we check in on each other. Um, but it's been a little while since we played together, and obviously the pandemic didn't help. How would you describe North Carolina alternative music? Oh, God, I don't know. I, I, I may have even gotten out before alternative was an official thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I left in 86. Um, in the 80s, there was a there was a big, um, it was kind of an explosion. I mean, Chapel Hill's always been about original music, mm-hmm. and... Um, uh, but the Triangle Area kind of exploded in the 80s with bands like the Fabulous Knobs and uh, Secret Service and X-Teens and Us. Um, so, and Dixon had his hand in everything. He Because we had such a capable record producer just sitting there in town, you know, everybody got to make at least one record with Dixon. <laughs> and, you know, if they if they could get a record deal, you had a producer, you know. And, and so this guy, Dave Robert, who ran the Cat's Cradle, he started a label oh, called yeah. Moonlight Records. Yeah. And signed four bands off the top. And one of them was a band I was in called The Blazers. And uh, X-Teens were another secret service. My friend Matt Barrett. Um, so there was, uh, yeah, there were... Back in those days, you know, if you made a record, you were on your way. You know, it was a it was a big a big deal to uh, to actually have a record in the stores. I remember when I saw Sneakers, which is probably seventy six or seven, really early um, uh, in the new wave thing, and they mm-hmm. had an album. They had an EP at at School Kids Records, whatever it was called before School Kids, and uh, of course Dixon and Mitch Easter, another yes. North Carolina guy. Oh. Genius. Mm-hmm. Instrumental in that. So um, the scene's always been really, really fruitful there. Uh, you know, in, in other towns where, where people demanded covers, Chapel Hill and Raleigh and Durham, to a certain extent, were, were always about original music. That's, that's always been accepted and favored, you know, there. So it was a good place to uh, be a budding musician and trying to figure things out. Uh, now, you had mentioned in the late 80s, you left North Carolina to go solo what happened then um i moved to new york city uh on my 30th birthday and i just like good for you uh, i'd been i i graduated with a you know journalism degree in 79 and then seven years later i i kind of feel like i got out by the skin of my teeth because i i think it would have been a perfectly uh reasonable thing to stay in chapel hill the rest of my life it's a great town and i know lots of people who've done it and um there's no reason not to except i sort of wanted to just broaden my musical opportunities and and i thought that i could i thought that my stuff was good enough to be on a major label and i moved to new york and started pitching my my demo tape around to majors and uh, I met a manager, and he got me to a publishing company called MCA, mm-hmm. um, and I signed a publishing deal with them. I didn't even know what publishing deals were. I was looking for record deals, but mm-hmm. pub- the publishing deal was a co-publishing deal where they would uh, advance me money and, and uh, help me get a record contract, which they did a year later um, when I signed with Columbia Records out in Los Angeles. So I just wanted to kind of broaden my horizons and 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 move on to New York and then L.A. and and see how I stood up 
against the rest of the business, I guess, was part of it. Um, I just wanted to see my, my, my music on a, on a real record, you know, on a real record label. Columbia had its downsides, but I still have my name on that red label, so I'm, I'm happy and with that. you're happy with that. So these growing pains, it must have been hard leaving North Carolina where the music scene and your success was just phenomenal. But I can understand the growing pains, too. It must have been hard. Did you go to New York and then go to L.A.? Did you go back and forth? Or? I went to New York. And um, and it was about a year later when this deal with MCA, which was based in Los Angeles, came through. So I, I moved to L.A. after that, um, dictated by that. And moving to L.A. with a job already in in my pocket was a huge deal. I didn't move out there and, you know, with no contacts or no prospects. So that was a big advantage of signing that deal and then going to L.A. I'm talking with Parthenon Huxley. If you live in the North Carolina area or have for a while, you're familiar with the name. And now more people are familiar with his name. So I'm glad to have you in the studio today. Did this, um, you know, you became more, I want to see the world. I want people to know my music. Is that what led to your work with Mick Jones and Stevie Salas of Stevie Salas Color Code? And I think you did some work with Robert Lamb of Chicago. That wasn't so much the desire to get my music known as it was to try to recoup some of my money at MCA. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They invested in me and my Columbia record didn't do much. And then we made another record uh, just paid for by MCA, which didn't do much. So um, a lot of the co-writing things I did was, were, uh, was an overall effort by MCA to get me into situations where I could possibly write a hit. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And and I was fine with that. Um, it was interesting. Co-writing's a process where it either works or it doesn't. You know pretty quickly. You know if you're going to okay. get along with somebody. And um, is there somebody you didn't did get along the... with? Sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> creative. Nameless. <laughs> okay. No, there was kind of a there was kind of a heavy metal guy they put me with, and that didn't work. And yeah. um, but with Mick Jones, you know, it's weird. You're in a room with a, with a singer. It wasn't Lou Graham. It was this guy who was in the band, Johnny Edwards, who was in the band briefly. Mm-hmm. And it was me, Mick, and Johnny sitting in a room, a rehearsal room with guitars and microphones and trying to come up with stuff. And, you know, this is a guy who's written a whole bunch of hits. And you sort of have to defer to him as you are also trying to be an equal co-creator. So it's a it's a funny little line to walk. Um but we ended up with one song that I thought was okay. It was called With Heaven on Our Side, and it was a big ballad, uh, kind mm-hmm. of in the, you know, I want to know what love is, kind uh, of like that. What year was this? Uh, 91, two, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. You think your journalism uh, it, degree helped you with this songwriting? Nah. <laughs> I think it's a separate thing. Okay, go ahead with That's your story. Separate, I, I started writing songs when I was 10, and I okay. feel like, that started and it was in my head and it's been and it's never left. Um, it's it just feels like an innate gift or something. Mm-hmm, and um, mm-hmm. I did have some good teachers at UNC Journalism School, and I proved to myself that that I did enjoy writing and I could write uh, that I could write with with accuracy and fairness and all that sort of stuff. And I, re- I recently wrote a memoir over the last few years that I've just finished and. That was the biggest scale thing, obviously, I've ever written on. And that was really, I mean, from instead of a three-minute song to a 420-page book was a, was a leap. But um, I think my journalism education might have helped me there. But uh, I just like writing. I just like writing. So when are we going to see this book or read this book? Uh, as soon as I get it legally vetted, 
Okay. And as as soon as I figure out whether I'm going to have to self-publish or if I can get a publisher interested, I'm in that icky post-creative period where I have to market myself, uh, you know, find a home for it. And um, but I'm dedicated to doing it because I'm really happy with the book. It's it's um, I think it turned out really well. I've I've shown it to a couple dozen people in my circle who all have had great things to say about it. So I'm, I'm ha- pretty excited about it. Have you thought about a title? Yes. Uh, currently, it's called Electric Light Odyssey, my epic quest to make music and avoid a real job. I love that. Um, uh, thank you. But I'm not sure if I'm going to keep Electric Light Odyssey because my work with ELO Part 2 and later the orchestra, it's a part of the book. It's a big part of it, but it's not everything. So I might call it something else. Um uh, we'll see. That the title is super important, and one thing I have learned about this is that to think like a marketer, you really do need to dig in and and run through all the mm-hmm. possibilities mm-hmm. for the title, and not just settle on the first catchy one you came up with. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm I'm working pretty hard on that angle of it, and trying to make sure my message can get across as clearly as possible. And it's such a good segue. You mentioned ELO. Now I'm going to ask you ELO Part Two. Is this a tour this year? Well, we don't really tour so much as we fly out. Okay. You know, we do fly outs like business trips. So, for instance, we're going to Florida in a couple of weeks for a couple of shows, then we'll come home. And then we'll go to Israel for four shows and then come home. Uh, We'll do one show in Finland and come home. So it's kind of like flying out to business trip. Um, So it's mostly fly outs. It's mostly business trips. Um, and, and it is starting to come back. We did eight shows in 2021, which is pretty bad, but better than nothing which yes, in 2020. And, yeah. um, and in 2022, the calendar is starting to fill up a little bit. It's starting to look better. It's not back to its fully robust self, but the promoters really want to get back in business. And, um, you know, there's, there's live music again. It's, it's coming back. Now, how and when did you start working with ELO? Uh, 1998, I got a call out of the blue from a guy named Eric Troyer, who was the keyboard player in ELO Part yeah. 2. He was the one American in the... The ELO Part 2 was basically a successor band to ELO. ELO broke up in 1986, mm-hmm. and then the guy, the guy Jeff Lynn, who made all the money from ELO, uh, didn't want to do it anymore. He wanted to work in the studio, where he's, you know, very, oh, obviously, a good producer, and yeah. great songwriter and all that. Right. But the guys who didn't make all the money, who were in the the live band, you know, the who were members of the group but not um, copyright participants, they got paid when they played live. So they wanted to put it back together, and that's what the drummer, Bev Bevan, did. He reorganized the band and called it ELO Part Two. And 10 years after they formed, the guitar player quit, which was 1998, and that's when I, I got a call from Eric. And I'd been recommended to Eric by a new friend of mine, a guy named Jeffrey Foskett, who was in the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson's band. Mm-hmm. And he saw, we played on a bill together and, and we really uh, enjoyed each other a lot. And he told Eric that I was the guy, give me a call and blah, blah, blah. And so <laughs> uh, I, Eric asked me if I wanted to go to England to audition for the band. And I said, yes, and we learned, I learned six or seven songs plus I learned the song called 10538 Overture, which yeah. is my favorite ELO song. And I wanted to play, if I, I figured if I didn't get the gig, at least I could play that song with them. And um, 
so I, I did the audition and I, I did pretty well. And then I asked if they could do 105.38 and we did that. And that nice. kind of put it over the top, I think. And they said, we'd like you to learn 38 songs and we'll see you in Uruguay. It worked out. It, your music <laughs> and ELO's music. I mean, you have to, I'm sure you'd be the first to attest. ELO has a unique sound. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's tricky music. It's relentless. Mm-hmm. You know, you, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of you, there's not a lot of blues slow jams or guitar breaks or um, you know improvised parts. It's all very very tightly written. Um, when you see our show and we're doing the ELO hits, it's just one big production after another, and they're the songs are sprightly and they move mm-hmm. and they're they're interesting and they're very well arranged. They're fun to sing. So it's it's um, I've been playing the music now for over 20 years. I'm not sick of it, which is a, a real testament to how good it is. Uh, people love our show, right. and and we've had you know we have we have we've had fans come and see us over 200 times. I mean it's it's amazing. It's I'm, a great feeling. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And the best thing about it is we're all a bunch of old men uh, who enjoy each other's company. We we eat dinner together. We we laugh together. We have a great time on stage and off and. That is a real blessing. I, I still hang get to hang out with a gang of guys. So. Isn't that, though, the whole thing about a great band is that everybody hangs out together? It's like a band of brothers. I know that's just a coin phrase, but isn't that what... I le- think there's a lot of bands that don't. More don't yeah, than do, I, do you think, today? I, no, I, I don't know any percentages. I just know there are, there are certainly bands where there are, not everybody gets along. But mm-hmm. it's too lucrative to to give up, and mm-hmm. and um, but I have it really good. I got to tell you, we we play. We're a monstrous band on stage. We're really really good, and we really like each other. And we're just a bunch of goofballs off stage. So it's uh, it's really the best of both worlds. Can where can we see you at ELO Part Two? Uh, well, now it's called the Orchestra, starring ELO former members. All right. Um, that that happened in 2000, so it's been that way for 22 years now. Um, you can see. Well, we just finished doing Disney. We'll be in upstate New York and uh, in the fall. Um, most of our gigs are overseas. If you're in Israel listening to this, we're coming soon. Tell you what, on ParthenonHuxley.com, okay, shows. Mm-hmm. It's always listed. All everything I'm doing is listed there. ParthenonHuxley.com. I'm. Really looking forward to seeing some of your gigs and the book with this incredible title that I th- kind of think you should keep that title. It's unique. <laughs> Unless you I abbreviate might, it. I might. I might. I'm, uh, I'm working on it, but I, but I appreciate it. I hope to see you at the shows. Thank you very much for coming in today. My pleasure. Thanks, Donna. You've been listening to Spotlight Conversations with Donna Reed. Subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts or your favorite platform. Thanks for tuning in.